0: So now theoretically we're on Galatians 2, but since it's been two weeks and everybody forgets everything in two weeks, I'll take a quick run at it. As most of you know, Galatians is the book that launched the Reformation. Martin Luther read Galatians and took a very radical view of what it said and came out of it with the doctrine of by faith alone which is what sort of launched the Reformation. And things needed to happen to be reformed, so the Reformation was not a bad thing. It didn't go far enough, but people never do. So it's an extremely important book to Christianity. I will suggest to you that most of the Sunday Bible teachers that you have heard teach Galatians don't understand it, I've taught it now three or four times, and I'm sort of getting to understand it, and the only way I understand it is in light of Torah. If you have a background in Torah, Galatians means something different than if you have a background in the New Testament. And I've said this many times before. I believe it's unfortunate that new believers are handed a New Testament, open typically to the Book of John, and that's where they're told to start. I think that's a terrible place to start. I think John is a wonderful book. Don't get me wrong. I think it's, it's a great book, and I love it. But that isn't the place to start. The place you start is at the beginning of the book, which is with the Torah, and that gets you all the principles. And then when you finally do get to the book of John, John just makes all sorts of sense. It's really great. But if you start with John at the beginning, you can get some bad ideas, especially if somebody hands it to you wrong in first, and you don't know anything. Well, Galatians is sort of the same way. If you come into Galatians from the perspective of they handed you the New Testament first, you will get a very different understanding of what's going on in Galatians than you will if you come at it Torah first. It's my personal belief, otherwise I wouldn't be doing this, that going at it Torah first is the proper way to understand what Paul is saying in Galatians. Anyway, we did. Chapter 1, and to do a quick recap, you have to understand the history of the time in order to put Galatians in context. Paul is writing to a group of Gentiles. For example, the letters of Peter are written to Hebrews, and they assume different things. Paul in Galatians is writing to Gentiles. These are not Messianic Jews. These are not people who have any knowledge whatsoever of Torah. They are complete, 100%, dyed-in-the-wool, full-fledged Gentiles and don't know nothing, except that they've got the Holy Spirit and this guy Paul came through and taught them some stuff. There's two political strains that are running through this that you need to understand. Strain number one is there are two parties of Messianic Jews in Jerusalem. There is the party, the circumcision. And these are Messianic Jews, like Paul, believe in Yeshua, they got the Holy Spirit, they talk in tongues, they walk on water, they do all that New Testament stuff. But they are of the opinion that in order to be a member of the kingdom of God and to be saved, you need to come in to Judaism and you need to be circumcised. Because we're the only ones. And you Gentiles are welcome, Glad to have you come in, but you need to be circumcised. And, of course, you all know the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 discussed that very question. And the party of the circumcision made the argument that I just made. Paul made the argument that, no, these folks have the Holy Spirit. They don't need to be circumcised. And what the council came up with is, no, you don't need to be circumcised, but there are certain basics, That you need to follow. Let me read it exactly. It's at Acts chapter 15. I want to pick it up at verse 19. I don't want to read the letter itself. This is James' judgment. So, Acts 15, 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues abstaining from things polluted by idols from sexual immorality from things strangled and from blood and, and I take blood to be in the broadest sense so we're talking about the laws of Nida for example and. What it's saying there is if you do this, then you're welcome to come into the synagogue and sit and listen to Moses be read. And then Moses will get you the rest of the way. So you don't have to be circumcised to come into the synagogue. You just have to have this sort of minimum standards of decent behavior. You can come in and then listen to Moses. That sort of thing One, You've got the party of the circumcision. And after Paul has planted these churches, they are coming along and saying, Yeah, 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 we know what Paul said, but let us tell you the real deal. We're from Jerusalem, and we're from the home office, and we're going to tell you what you actually need to do. So Paul is writing in opposition to these people who are coming behind him trying to convince the Gentiles that in order to be saved, they must be circumcised. That's thing one. Thing two is this is all operating in the context of the Roman Empire. And the Romans, they had a thing about religion. They didn't care who you worshipped as long as you were well-behaved. You could worship Yehovah. You could worship the Egyptian sun gods. You could worship anybody you wanted. We don't care as long as you maintain civil order. And one of the ways that they did that is they deified Caesar. So one of Caesar's official titles was the son of God. Because when his father, the previous Caesar, died, the Senate would deify the dead Caesar, which then made his son the Son of God. And oh, by the way, when Yeshua comes into this mix and he is proclaimed as the Son of God, he is going straight against the empire. This is an intensely political statement. Now, in order to enforce loyalty to Rome, if you will, it was required... I believe once a year, once every six months, I'm not sure which, but at least once a year, you were to go into any temple. You could pick your temple. It didn't matter. Diana, Ra, anybody that you want. And you'd go in there and you'd offer on the altar a pinch of incense up to Caesar. So you would do a token sacrifice of a pinch of incense to Caesar. Jews wouldn't do that. And they had an exemption. They had a legal exemption. They didn't have to do that. So these Gentiles now who are coming into the mix and they have the Holy Spirit and they come to a realization that we are not going to sacrifice to Caesar anymore. Well, there's only one group of people who have an exemption from that, and that's the Jews. Oh, we got the Holy Spirit. We worship the same God you do. We don't have to do it either. And the Jews say, uh, just a minute. If we're harboring uncircumcised Gentiles and we are claiming to the Romans that they don't have to sacrifice, the Romans are going to come after us for harboring traitors. So if indeed you want our Jewish exemption from sacrificing, you need to become a Jew, flip your toga up, we'll take a little off the top, and we've got a procedure to turn you into a Jew. So there are two things going on here. One is the party of the circumcision. We're the Jews. We're the chosen people. In order to come into relationship with our gods, you need to be circumcised. And then in the Roman case, ah, in order to stop sacrificing to Caesar and come under the protection of the synagogue, you have to be circumcised. So you got those two strains that are playing off against each other, and you have these Gentile Galatians who don't know nothing, and so they've got... These guys from the home office coming through and say, we need to get you circumcised. And so Paul is now writing against that. If you don't understand all of that, there's stuff going on in here that, what's that all about? At this point, the letter begins with Paul giving his credentials. And I'm not going to go through them again. We did it last time. And saying that he received the gospel directly from God, not from a man and that he had gone back to Jerusalem and had talked to the apostles in Jerusalem, and they had, in fact, confirmed that the gospel that he had gotten independently was, in fact, correct. So all of this is by way of establishing that, hey, I am just as much a heavy hitter in this stuff as these people from Jerusalem who have come up here and are disturbing you. In other words, I am just as trustworthy. I got just as good credentials as they do. The other thing about this letter is the tone is really starchy. As he writes, for example, to the Colossians. This is clearly a group of people that he really likes. And it's a, see, you guys are doing great. And I'm encouraging you in the faith. And wow, I like everything you're doing. Keep doing it and all that. This is not that kind of letter. This is a letter of rebuke and correction. Having said all that, we're now down to Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. That's what I just said. He he goes to Jerusalem and checks with the home office, says this is what I'm talking about, and they, of course, approve it. Verse 3, but even Titus who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. The deal here is Paul has got two disciples. He's got Timothy and he's got Titus. Titus is a Greek. No Hebrew lineage whatsoever. Pure 100% died-in-the-wool Gentile. Timothy, on the other hand, is half-Jewish. His mother is a Jew. When he meets these two young men, neither of them is circumcised. Titus he does not circumcise. Timothy, he does circumcise. So Paul is not against circumcision. For members of the covenant, Jews, circumcision is entirely appropriate, and he takes Timothy, who is a young man, I mean he's not a child, and has him circumcised because he is a Jew. So the issue is not, do we get circumcised, do we not get circumcised? The issue is, is circumcision necessary for salvation? and is circumcision necessary for Gentiles? That's the question in the letter. In the case of Titus, he says, hey, I took him back to Jerusalem, told him all around the city. Everybody met him. I went and talked to the heavy hitters in the church. Nobody suggested that he get circumcised, even though he is a believer and my disciple. So I'm not on verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who have slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Messiah Yeshua, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Let me read that again so it's clear. That we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. So this council of Jerusalem, they divided up the territory. Paul's got the Gentiles. Peter has got Hebrews in the dispersion. And if you read Peter's two letters, they are both addressed to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So Peter is explicitly writing to Hebrews. Now there's some dispute whether we're talking about the lost tribes or simply Jews that have spread out through the Mediterranean region. Either reading is entirely possible. But his ministry is to Hebrews. Down to verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. You remember Peter and Cornelius, where the sheet comes down, and Peter gets the word from God that it's okay for him to go to a Gentile's house. When he was called to go to Cornelius, his first reaction was, No, I'm not going there because I'm not going to a Gentile's house. And then he got the vision of the sheet, and God told him it's okay for him to go to a Gentile house. So from then on, he has no problem associating with Gentiles. But the people from the home office show up, and he gets self-conscious. And that's, I think, literally all that it is, is they're looking at him like, what are you doing over there? You're not supposed to be eating with them. You're supposed to be eating with us. And he's embarrassed and self-conscious and goes over and sits with them. Paul, who's the one who has the ministry of the Gentiles, And Paul gets righteously indignant because he perceives that Peter is undercutting his ministry. I mean, we all know Peter, right? We know all the stories about Peter. Peter is impulsive, shoots himself six or seven times in the foot before he even draws anything. I don't think Peter even thought about it. But Paul saw it as, wait a minute, guy, you're undermining what I'm trying to do here. So Paul jacks him up. And the other thing is there are apparently a bunch of Messianic Jews down there ministering to Gentiles, and so when Peter pulls back, they all go with Peter. Down to verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This, I think, has also sort of got the undercurrent of the circumcision party in there, too. The idea of these folks coming from Jerusalem, and I suspect that they are also former Pharisees who are of the circumcision party. And the idea is, again, get everybody circumcised. Verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Yeshua Messiah. Now, there's going to be some translation problems here. And I'm giving you this translation deliberately. What's actually written in my Bible is through faith in Yeshua Messiah. King Jimmy has... Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Yeshua Messiah. Either translation, I understand, is correct. I believe the one I gave you is the correct one, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. Because the later part of the letter only makes sense if it's translated that way. Let me read it again. But we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Yeshua Messiah. So we also have believed in Messiah Yeshua in order to be justified by faith in Messiah and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And actually, I'm going to read the next sentence, but I'm going to come back. Now, verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Messiah, we too are found to be sinners, is Messiah then a servant of sin? Certainly not. The only way he can be a servant of sin is if, back in verse 16, you are saved through his faithfulness. So the question is, is his faithfulness then a servant of sinners? Let's try it again. It's important. This is the first year I've actually understood this passage. I usually just slide right over it, but we're not going to do that tonight. We're going to nail this sucker. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Yeshua Messiah. So you are justified through his faithfulness. In other words, he was faithful to God and went to the cross and died. And that faithfulness of his is what is going to save you. Then down in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Messiah, we too were found to be sinners, Is Messiah then a servant of sin? In other words, is his faithfulness in the service of sin? Paul's asking a rhetorical question here. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Messiah, we too were found to be sinners, who's we too? We Jews. Because remember, we are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. So if in our endeavor to be justified in Messiah, we too, Jews, are found to be sinners, is Messiah then a servant of sin? Certainly not. He starts off with, we are Jews, we are not Gentile sinners. In other words, we have a relationship with the one true living God, we're not like you pagans and all that kind of stuff. We're the chosen ones. And we are saved through the faithfulness of Yeshua to go to the cross and shed his blood. If after that, we Jews are found to be sinners, is Christ's faithfulness then in service of sin? What he's saying is, has Messiah become a servant of sin if I, a Jew, not a Gentile sinner, sin. Does that make his faithfulness in service of my sin? Paul is not easy to unpack. So now let's come back and unpack this. So starting back in 15 again. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. In other words, we have a covenant with God and we are in a relationship with God by birth. We are the chosen people by birth and, oh, by the way, there isn't anything we can do to get unchosen. One of the things that lots of Jews over history have tried to do is figure out a way to get unchosen. Can't do it. So the idea that we are Jews by birth, verse are 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Works of the law is a code phrase that means something to the Pharisees and the rabbis. It can either mean following the written Torah, It can mean that. Or more commonly what it means is following the oral Torah. So it's a code phrase. Works of the law are following the oral Torah most commonly to rabbinic Jews. And we all know that the oral Torah is a series of rabbinic rulings over the centuries. And every one of them has been in response to somebody asking a legitimate question. So some housewife comes to the local rabbi and says, Rabbi, I got this chicken. Is it kosher to eat? The rabbi asks a bunch of questions, says, yes, it's kosher. Or, No, it's not kosher. So in response to thousands of questions like these, over the years, rabbis have made rulings. And those rulings have been codified. And unfortunately, many of those rulings have strayed from the written Torah. But Jews regard the rulings of the rabbis in the same way that you regard the letters of Paul. So Paul has written a series of letters, and we, Messianic believers and Christians, study those, and we regard Paul as being authoritative. The Jews study the oral Torah, and they regard that as authoritative in the same way. So, works of the law, then, in this case, is probably talking about oral Torah. Back to 16 again. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Yeshua Messiah. So, we also have believed in Messiah Yeshua in order to be justified by faith in Messiah and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, you brought up Avi's book. Avi makes a big point that what we're talking about here is Oral Torah. It doesn't make any difference whether you're talking about Oral Torah or Written Torah. The same is true. What it's saying here is obeying the Torah is a good idea. It's obedience to God. It will... Make your life better, because God has set up the rules of his universe, and these are the rules, and if you follow the rules, your life will be better. All of those things are true, but it doesn't grant you eternal life. Regardless of whether it's the written Torah of Moses or the oral Torah of the rabbis, simple obedience and following the Torah is not sufficient. As I say, in Avi's book, he makes a big deal about the rabbis and and works of the law, Ma'asim and how it's all based on oral Torah, and a lot of that, I am sure, is true. In this case, it's irrelevant, though. Verse 17, we've been through, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Messiah, we too are found to be sinners, is Messiah then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Messiah, It is no longer I who live, but Messiah who lives in me. and the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Messiah died for no purpose. So the deal here is, and Paul will say it in other places, the Torah is wonderful. Having received the Torah is a tremendous blessing and benefit to the Jews. It is in all ways good. However, it is not intended to be the vehicle of salvation. It is intended to be how does one live after one is saved. And if you look at the sequence in Exodus, God reaches into the world all by himself. He grabs his people and he takes them out of the world. With no help from them, thank you. That is salvation by grace alone. They did no works whatsoever to get themselves saved. They did cry out to God, and he moved in response to their cry, but their salvation was a sovereign act of his that they didn't have any part in. They had nothing to do with bringing plagues down on Egypt. They had nothing to do with any of that stuff. He did it all by himself by his sovereign power. He then takes them through baptism. They go through the Red Sea and they come up the other side. And they are born again when they come up the other side. On the other side, once they have been born again, he takes them into the wilderness and he leads them to Sinai. And what does he give them at Sinai? The Torah. Notice the Torah comes after salvation, not before salvation. The Torah is not a vehicle for salvation. It is a roadmap on how the saved shall live. So the Torah was intended to be given to a people who are saved and brought into the kingdom of God, and it's God's rule book, manual, roadmap however you want to describe it, on how the people of God should live. Faith in God is what saves you. I am done with chapter 2, and we are not going to get into chapter 3. This first couple of chapters is foundational. What I will suggest to you is much of the Sunday church doesn't understand what I just said or doesn't understand it that way is perhaps another way to say it. Please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com slash purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.